Welcome one, welcome all, to the Global Immigrant State Podcast, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We are so glad you are joining us today for another insightful discussion on an ever-evolving global issue. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director at the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, as well as your host for this amazing program. For those who do not know, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that is dedicated to helping you better understand the complex global issues shaping the world today. Whether you are a foreign policy expert or a novice, we provide the in-depth discussions necessary to go beyond the headlines and seed fact-based community conversations. If you have not already, I invite you to share this podcast with a friend, relative, neighbor, or rando on the street to continue helping us bring this great program to the broadest audience possible. A quick thank you to everyone who has supported this program, as well as the World Affairs Council itself, through membership and donations. We cannot continue our work without the strong set of supporters that we have, so we graciously ask that you consider donating in order to help us continue bringing these great programs. One group that has been immensely helpful in supporting our work is McLean Middleton, our monthly sponsor of this program. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire, Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. A huge thank you to the team over there for your help in making these programs possible. You are truly community leaders here in the state. One final ask before we dive in. We want to know your feedback. Drop us an email at council at wacnh.org. Leave us a review or a comment, or even simply a rating on our work. Your feedback can help us continue to improve our offerings. Now, on with the show. Since you are listening to this episode, and the global and the granite state in general, we will assume that you may have heard a little something about the island nation of Sri Lanka and the wild past few months they have experienced. However, as we have seen throughout this program, international crises do not just pop up out of nowhere. They are usually years, if not decades, in the making. So, what has taken the small country located off the coast of India from a country well-known for their beautiful beaches to one that is dashed across the headlines as protesters overrun the presidential palace and throw an impromptu pool party? I spoke with Dr. Neil Devota, a professor of politics and international affairs at Wake Forest University and regional expert to find out more. First, I want to give a little bit of background to those who may not be quite so familiar with Sri Lanka. This island, located off the southeastern coast of India, has played a major role in international trade for millennia. Even before colonial rule by the British, when the island was known as Ceylon, yes, like the tea, 
This island played a vital role in international trade and foreign policy. European invasions started in the early 16th century, and Sri Lanka did not regain its full independence until 1948. In 1972, the Republic of Sri Lanka was born after rewriting its constitution. It is important to mention that the country suffered from a civil war that lasted almost three decades, starting in the 1980s, as the Tamil minority waged a separatist war where both sides were accused of atrocities. This war was extremely important to the current situation, as two main players in Sri Lankan politics emerged from this war as heroes. Like in other parts of South Asia, Sri Lanka has had some leading families playing leading roles in the island's politics. And the Rajapaksas are one such family. Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was president twice, from 2005 to 2015, and then became prime minister in 2019 after his brother, younger brother, Gothabia, became president. Both of them come from a political family in that their father and uncle engaged in politics going back to the time of independence uh, or even before. So because these two individuals, Mahinda Rajapaksa as president, and his younger brother, Gotabe Rajapaksa, who was Mahinda's defense secretary when the war was being waged against the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. This was a group that was branded a terrorist organization by over 30 countries. It was fighting a separatist conflict in Sri Lanka that lasted almost 30 years. And it was a group that many people said, including top military analysts, who said that they couldn't be defeated militarily. And what the Rajapaksas did together with military leaders was to defeat the group by resorting to some very brutal tactics and tactics that have led to, you know, accusations of war crimes. So the family is also Buddhist. Sri Lanka has a population that's about 75% Sinhalese. The vast majority of Sinhalese are Buddhists. About 70% of the population from a religious standpoint is Buddhist. Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism has played a leading role in the way the country's politics has developed since it got independence in 1948. Unfortunately, that's not been all for the positive. It was the racism that was associated with Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism, racism that marginalized minorities, especially the Tamils, that led to the civil war to begin with. And so the Rajapaksas are at the forefront of this Sinhalese Buddhist nationalist movement as politicians. And so they have very strong Sinhalese Buddhist nationalist credentials, credentials that were only bolstered and burnished as a result of their defeating the, the LTT. And so they dominated politics from 2005 to 2010 during Mahinda Rajapaksa's first term. The war came to an end in 2009 and then continued to dominate politics thereafter during Mahinda Rajapaksa's second term. Now, this was more than just dominating politics. They basically captured the state because a good 75% of the country's budget was being controlled by these two brothers and the extended family. So there was another brother in parliament. There was a fourth brother who was running the ministry in charge of the economy. 
It will also be helpful for listeners to learn a little about the system of government in Sri Lanka, as it is important to the understanding of how the crisis has come about. Sri Lanka operated as kind of a Westminster parliamentary system until 78, when the new constitution was instituted, instituted by the way by Ranil Vikramasinghe's uncle. And so thereafter, it became kind of a semi-presidential system, very similar to what you see in France. And so you have this executive president that is all powerful, and you have the prime minister who oversees governance within parliament. And there's been this debate in Sri Lanka for the longest time with many people wanting the executive presidency done away with because the ability to hold the executive accountable was radically vitiated, reduced, just given the powers associated with the president. And if you start to look at Sri Lanka's kind of democratic backsliding leading to kind of autocracy, it was more of an electoral autocracy. So people were voting, it was a democracy, but the executive was often acting in an autocratic manner, and it's the executive presidency that enabled it. So you had amendments that were passed to reduce the powers of the executive president. When Mahinda Rajapaksa came, he reversed that. When Mahinda Rajapaksa lost in 2015, the new parliament voted to reverse some of the powers again that were associated with the strong executive. When Gotabaya came, he reversed it again. And so they've gone back and forth. And so... Gotabia, thanks to the 20th Amendment that was instituted soon after he became president, is among the most powerful executives to ever hold this office. With all this power, Goto was able to install many friends and family into key positions within the government, ensuring that his preferred policies were put into place. It also ensured that many of those policies were not necessarily the ones that held the best interests of the people of Sri Lanka at heart. One final piece to cover as we set the stage for this historic collapse of the country's government and economy is the state of the economy itself. Astute followers of Sri Lanka will know that the island nation was solidly in the middle income bracket when it comes to world rankings. Coming in at number 71 out of 215 ranked countries and administrative units based on the World Bank data on GDP. When adjusted for purchasing power parity, Sri Lanka fares even better ranking at number 55. These numbers are based on 2021 data. However, they do mask a long-term structural problem in the Sri Lankan economy. If you look at numbers, the economy has performed quite well in terms of GDP and the like. But Sri Lanka has had macroeconomic problems connected to the economy going back decades. You know, it is a country that has basically lived beyond its means. On the one hand, it has done very well when it comes to things like education and welfare and the like. But again, it was funding these programs by falling into debt. And initially the debt was not that substantial, but over time it grew. And then you had the civil war, which forced the government to fall into more debt in order to finance the war. And under Mahinda Rajapaksa, you had a series of loans that were taken to build the country's infrastructure. Some of it was spent on necessary and good projects, but much of it, I think, was spent on wasteful projects, unnecessary projects, grandiose projects that were not all that beneficial for 
the populace. Vanity projects, really, that were named, the airport named after him, a number of things that were not generating income to pay back the loans. And unfortunately, most of these vanity projects are associated with China. And then there are these problems associated with how those loans were given out and the lack of transparency and the non-concessionary nature of the loans and the like. But China is just one creditor that Sri Lanka only owes about 10% of these loans to China. Right now it owes about $52 billion and it owes China, they say, between five and 10. And the fact that we can't come up with a precise number alone tells you the secretive nature of some of these loans. Rajapaksa was pursuing kind of a debt rollover strategy. So kind of borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and then borrowing from Paul to pay Peter, right? So there was foreign currency flowing in. Sri Lanka was always a very prominent tourist destination, but after the war, it became even more prominent and it was well advertised. And so tourist numbers skyrocketed, which meant foreign currency coming into the country. Uh, there are probably a million Sri Lankans who work around the Middle East and in a number of other countries. They're presenting money, so remittances were also contributing to the foreign currency coffers. So even as the country was falling into more and more debt, it was able to finance the payments on some of the principal and the interest using these foreign currency inflows. Then you had COVID, which put a kind of stop to tourism, which also forced a lot of Sri Lankans who were contributing to the foreign currency remittances to return home. And the country did quite well, actually, in carrying out its vaccination program. Only about 16,500 people, I think, have died as a result of COVID, although it's starting to pick up a bit, just like it is in other parts of the world. So the COVID crisis affected the economy, but it affected all economies around the world. But after countries started to kind of come out of COVID, after the world started to kind of come out of COVID, deal with it, you had inflation kicking all over the world. And that started to affect Sri Lanka. So you have two things happening here. One is you have these extraneous events like COVID and then a little later, the war in Ukraine, that inevitably affects the country's economy. But you also have domestic factors, this large debt, and then decisions that were made by the government, again, a domestic factor. And the big decision here that, that contributed to this economic downfall was the government in April 2021 deciding to ban chemical fertilizer. And so... A good one quarter of the population in Sri Lanka depends on agriculture. That's a large number of people, close to 5.5 million people. And so when they banned chemical fertilizer, that made clear to the farmers that they were going to see lower yields. Gotabe Rajapaksa had promised to introduce organic farming completely within 10 years. But this decision was made almost overnight and without talking to competent scientists in Sri Lanka. This was more of a political decision. And it appears it was done so the government could save $400 million that it was spending in subsidies because the, the chemical fertilizers were subsidized. And that is when these protests kind of started. So in the course of three to four years, 
the Raja Pasca administration went from winning the presidency in a landslide election in November of 2019 to being run out of the country in July of 2022. This seems to be a dramatic collapse, particularly for a family that had the future of Sri Lanka in its hands for the foreseeable future. While there is never just one answer to why something goes wrong, Sri Lanka seemed to make the wrong decisions, compounding the internal and external issues that led to the downfall of the country. On the one hand, you had this dollar-denominated debt, which is about 50 to 51 billion, is what Sri Lanka owes its creditors. Along with this, one of the first things that Gotabe Rajapaksa did when he became president was to implement these tax cuts that nobody was really clamoring for. And what the tax cuts did was reduce government revenue. Very quickly, especially once COVID hit, you had really two crises from a monetary standpoint. You have a dollar crisis because you don't have enough dollars to pay back your debt and buy essential commodities on the world market. And you also have a rupee crisis because you don't have enough revenue being generated as a result of the tax cuts. So what the government ends up doing is printing money. The numbers I have seen suggest that the government printed in just 2021, $3.5 billion worth of rupees. And it continues to print rupees because it has a state employment force of about 1.5 million. So these people have to be paid. So there were two crises in a way from a monetary standpoint that the government was dealing with. Now, in terms of the debt, I told you that the country owes about 51 billion. This year alone, it owes about 7 billion. In April, it basically said it was not in a position to pay back the loans. So in May, I think it defaulted for the very first time in its history, as you mentioned. It owes India. It owes China about five to 10 billion, more like maybe six and a half to seven. It owes Japan as much money as it owes China. It owes the ADB and the World Bank and the IMF. And it owes the most to actually private investment firms, most of them located in the US. These are due to the dollar-denominated bonds that it issued. And so now you have this country that's in no position to pay back its loans. And so it has to restructure its debt. Once Sri Lanka began defaulting on its debt obligations, for the first time in its history since independence, things started to spiral quickly. The farmers started protesting, and then unions associated with the farmers started protesting. So it then led to lower crop yields. And this was all now happening as the country was short of dollars to pay for essential commodities. And so even as these protests were picking up, you started to see people kind of stand in lines, and the lines get longer for things like milk powder and sugar, and the prices skyrocketing. And especially the lines were terribly long, lasting days in some instance for gasoline and for cooking gas. You know, most Sri Lankans now use propane cylinders to cook. And so this then led to the government becoming more and more unpopular because a government that cannot deal with people's basic necessities very quickly loses the legitimacy to rule. So even though Gotabe won with a thumping majority, 
when he became president in November 2019, that mandate vanished at the moment people could not fend for themselves and had to go without meals. After several weeks of peaceful protest, violence broke out at a protest outside the private residence of President Rajapaska, which led to a mass arrest and the government enacting a state of emergency. The imposition of a curfew, however, did not put an end to the protests, which continued for several weeks. Despite some violence, mainly sparked by pro-government forces, the protest remained peaceful. However, many houses of members of parliament, mainly from the ruling party, were burnt to the ground, which you certainly don't hear about in the typical mass mobilization anywhere in the world. However, perhaps most importantly for the success of the protesters, the military seems to have not taken a side in this crisis, which has not always been the case in mass uprisings in Sri Lanka. In the past, the government has used the military to violently repress protests, forced disappearances of protest leaders and participants, and employed torture to try and break government opposition. So far, the military has been very restrained. They've basically tried to make sure that they've stayed neutral. There's been violence against the protesters. Some in the police have resorted to violence. There are goons associated with some of these politicians that have resorted to violence. But the so-called tri-forces, the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, and those entities associated with them have been very restrained. But Sri Lanka has a history of using the military to put down rebellions, whether it's insurrections by Sinhalese youth or the separatist movement that was led by the Tigers. And when they have cracked down, they've been absolutely brutal, you know, with torture and disappearances and murder being kind of part of the mix. So one just hopes that the country does not get to that point, that in spite of the suffering, it can just chug along until it gets out of this rut. So on April 3rd, the Rajapaska government dissolved the cabinet in an effort to bring control to the situation. However, the Rajapaska brothers refused to leave their positions at that time, further infuriating the protesters. Then, on May 9th, Mahinda resigned as prime minister, leading to the appointment of Raniel Wickremesinghe as prime minister. This, however, does not bring an end to the protests. Wikare Masinga is an interesting choice in this role, made all the more interesting when he's appointed president after Gota leaves office on July 13th. Ranil Wickremesinghe has been in parliament since 1977. He is knowledgeable on world affairs. He understands what it would take to fix the economy, but he's also seen as a failed politician, considered to be a failed politician because he's been prime minister six times now. The last time was when he was made prime minister by Gotabe Rajapaksa when Mahinda Rajapaksa was forced to flee the country. Mahinda Rajapaksa was prime minister and forced to flee the country on May 9th. And then two months later, on July 9th, Gotabe was forced to flee the presidential secretariat and then left the country on July 13th, went to the Maldives and then flew from there to Singapore and is likely to get back to Sri Lanka and be provided a very luxurious and secure retirement because the last thing I think the current leaders in Sri Lanka want is for him to get arrested as a result of the war crimes allegations made against him. Vikramasinghe was prime minister five times 
before and was made prime minister for the sixth time when Mahinda Rajapaksa was forced to flee in May. He has never completed a full term as prime minister. So even during those previous occasions, he never completed a full term. He ran for president twice. He lost. He, on two other occasions, realized that he was not going to win. So he uh, recruited other people to run instead. And he has coveted the presidency from, I think, the time he entered politics. While he may have the experience to run the country, he does not have the popular mandate, and the protesters are still calling for his resignation. In addition, he has come to be in a position to be named prime minister and then president in a very sly way. He comes from a very politically connected family. He's a member of the United National Party, which was the party that negotiated independence from the British. And many of the party's leaders are related to Vikramasinghe. So here is this man who has coveted the presidency, who is smart and capable, but who also is considered somewhat arrogant in a very quiet way, acts in a very omniscient fashion. In the last parliamentary election, did not win his constituency. In fact, not only did he not win his own constituency, his party did not win a single seat. So he was basically, as far as most people were concerned, done. But the party did win what's called a seat as part of the national list. So there are 29 seats that are associated with what's called the national list. And these 29 people get sent to parliament by their respective parties. And the number of seats a party is allocated as part of the national list is determined by the percentage of votes they get island-wide. So based on the United National Party winning about a quarter million votes, the United National Party was allocated one seat. Vikramasinghe initially said he would not accept that seat. He would not enter parliament through the national list, basically through the back door, so to speak. And yet about 10 months later did exactly that. So here's a guy who enters parliament not having won his constituency with his party not winning a single seat at the last parliamentary election, who is then made prime minister. So he's a party of one in parliament. And so he gets made prime minister when Mahinda Rajapaksa is forced to flee in May. And then when Gotabir is forced to flee, he is made president. Now, this is procedurally constitutional. But politically, many people consider it illegitimate, right? I mean, here's a guy who couldn't even win his constituency, who is now the president commanding all these powers. And the presidency actually has a lot of powers associated with it. And so the protesters who were calling for the Rajapaksas to leave also started demanding for Vikramasinghe to leave because Vikramasinghe is seen now as a Rajapaksa stooge. Clearly, not a great position for any politician to be in, but it seems pretty clear why Gota Rajapaska wanted Vikramasinghe to take over the presidency. When he was prime minister the previous time, he did not take the initiative to pursue corruption charges against the Rajapaksas, and they were very credible corruption charges. And so the sense is that he was picked by the Rajapaksas to be prime minister because they were confident 
that he would make sure that they would not be held responsible for all the crimes they've committed, ranging from the murder of journalists to disappearances to just monumental corruption. In addition to the resignation of all government officials connected to the Rajapaksa regime, a restoration of the economy, and a better life moving forward, the protesters are also demanding an end to the democratic backsliding that the country has seen under the watch of the Rajapaksa government. I don't think you may see too much movement on transforming the powers of the president or getting rid of the executive presidency, which Vikramasinghe had said he was in favor of. But that is something that I think a lot of the protesters have demanded. It's something that most Sri Lankans want. In fact, a poll that was done last month shows that 70% of Sri Lankans want the executive presidency done away with, which would mean that it would become more of a parliamentary system where a prime minister is forced to be more attuned to the will of parliament, which is kind of not what we have right now. They are also demanding a reduction of corruption, a more responsive government, and to simply feel that the government is looking out for the people rather than themselves. Looking ahead, it is important to take a look at both the economic and political crisis that Sri Lanka faces. What conditions and steps are necessary to put the country back on track and avoid the worst of the economic and humanitarian fallout? Given where the country is today, the optimistic scenario is that it may take three to five years for the country to get back to where it was in 2019. So if everything turns out hunky-dory, then you are looking at maybe 2026 or 2027 for the country to get back to where it was in 2019. Those who are more skeptical, and if you look at the way the politics are playing out, people have every reason to be skeptical, think that it would take longer which is basically to say that Sri Lanka would have lost an entire decade in terms of its development. Given the number of years this country is going to be experiencing economic turmoil, the economy is supposed to shrink by about 8% this year. It will shrink probably another 2 or 3% next year, and that's assuming that things work out well in terms of the debt restructuring. And if that doesn't happen, then it may shrink even more next year. So you're looking at about a 10% shrinkage over 2022 and 2023. Who knows what can happen? If economically things get worse, and they could very well get worse, Vikramasinghe wouldn't have to dissolve parliament. There may be a, a revolution of sorts. Speaking of debt restructuring, it is important to understand where the government owes money, how they can work with their creditors to restructure, and what challenges they face in doing so. The problem is that in order to do that, first of all, it would have to do that in order for the IMF and the World Bank and others to kind of help Sri Lanka get out of this rut. Because the IMF is not going to give money to Sri Lanka to go pay the Japanese or the Indians or the Chinese. So what the IMF and the World Bank and the ADB, what they want Sri Lanka to do is to sit down with its creditors and hammer out a deal that would allow it to pay back these loans over an extended period. Ideally, these creditors would take a haircut, meaning they would end up agreeing to be paid less than what they are owed. Part of the problem here is China, because China doesn't like to take haircuts. And China wants to be treated as a primary creditor. 
it is not part of the Paris Club. So the Paris Club is a group of 22 countries that work with countries that are severely in debt to try and restructure loans. China and India operate outside the Paris Club. I think India would be happy to go along just to help Sri Lanka and increase its influence in the country, which it is now doing. But China's problem is that, first of all, does not like to restructure loans in ways that prevents it from getting fully what it's owed. It's happy to renegotiate loans. It's happy to provide new loans so that the country can pay China what it owes, of course, which keeps adding to the problem. China is also, I think, concerned because it has loaned so much money to so many countries that are facing some of the same issues that Sri Lanka has faced and could also end up defaulting. There are a number of countries out that could end up in the situation Sri Lanka is in. So if it restructures Sri Lanka's loans, it may be forced to restructure these other loans associated with other countries. That is kind of where things stand. And so until the loans are restructured, the IMF is not going to come to Sri Lanka's assistance. And I think the World Bank yesterday or the day before said that it was not going to provide any aid unless the political situation stabilizes. So number one, you have to stabilize the political situation. Number two, you have to kind of come up with a debt restructuring plan where all these creditors sit down and agree to take either the same kind of haircut or to agree to the same terms associated with the restructuring. Then the IMF would come in. Now, in the meantime, they're looking for about 1.5 billion for what's called bridge financing. That is just to pay for essential commodities that the country needs to feed its people and function until an IMF bailout can be negotiated. So there are stages to this process. It's going to be a painful process. There's a lot of restructuring that also has to happen within the country. You know, the country has to go through this process of structurally readjusting its economy. That would be very, very controversial. It would mean getting rid of subsidies. It would mean raising revenue in the form of higher taxes. It would mean privatizing state-owned companies that keep losing money, have always lost money. It may be reducing the number of government employees because so many of these positions are just redundant. As to how all of this is going to happen, it's hard to predict because this is more than just the country dealing with foreign entities and restructuring its debt. There's also so much that has to be done locally that would be so controversial and tumultuous. With over $52 million owed to various creditors, this will certainly not be an easy task to get the economic house in order making it difficult to receive the support the country needs to get back on the path to sustainable growth. On top of all of this, the majority of Sri Lankans view the current government as illegitimate, further complicating any recovery. There are always steps that can be taken in order to put the government on the path to legitimacy and save the country. But the question, as always, is will there be the political will to do so when it will cost many powerful politicians their careers power, influence, and wealth. Some of the obvious steps would be for a cross-party government to be created. There is a cabinet in place, but nearly every single person in the current cabinet 
that uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe appointed soon after he was sworn in as president was in the Rajapaksa cabinet. So as far as the protesters are concerned, you know, the big demand was for the Rajapaksas to get lost. That has happened, but on the other hand, they did not envision Ranil Vikramasinghe taking the place of Gautabia because as far as the protesters are concerned, as far as the vast majority of the country is concerned, Ranil Vikramasinghe is a failed and discredited leader. And so you have a development that nobody really envisioned and you have Ranil Vikramasinghe basically dependent on the Rajapaksas who are still in parliament mind the Rajapaksa and his brother and his son and his nephew continue to be in parliament and it's their party that Ranil Vikramasinghe is dependent on to kind of maintain a majority in parliament. And so all those cabinet ministers who were associated with the Rajapaksa presidency are now associated with the Vikramasinghe presidency. If they put together a cross-party government, that would mean that the other parties or, or most of the parties that would be willing to be part of the government would take collective responsibility in running the country. There'd be less bickering. And that would also help the people get a sense that there is a certain unity here in parliament that is geared towards helping the country get out of this rut. A second thing that I think would work well for the country and the protesters in terms of what they want to see is for Vikramasinghe initially at least to get rid of the 20th Amendment. So getting rid of the 20th Amendment would empower the Prime Minister at the expense of the President. This would mean passing what would be the 21st Amendment. And there are discussions that are ongoing about this. Third thing that would be ideal is to just get rid of the executive presidency. I think that would appease the vast majority of people in the country. Now, Vikramasinghe, like I told you, has someone who has coveted the presidency, who enjoys having all these powers, just like all the people before him who were president, and has a very good excuse at hand. And that is that at this point of time, during this crisis, it's good to have someone who has these powers to make sure that the country stays stable. So that may not happen. Another thing that would be welcomed, I think, is for Vikramasinghe to dissolve parliament in March. So parliament cannot be dissolved until it has completed at least half its terms. So by the time we get to March 2023, Vikramasinghe could constitutionally dissolve parliament and call for new elections. Now, there is talk that part of the deal that allowed Vikramasinghe to be voted in as president with most of the Rajapaksa party members voting in his favor, that the deal was that he would not call for early elections because these guys know that were there to be parliamentary elections, nearly every single one of them would not win re-election. If he does that, there's nothing that the parliamentarians can do to prevent him from doing so. It will bolster his credentials, I think. And he may very well end up doing that. And we will have to have, in any case, parliamentary elections by August 2025 and presidential elections by November 2024. It is still yet to be seen where the country is headed and if the needed reforms will be made. However, the end result for this small country in the Indian Ocean has the potential to dramatically shift the future of the world. Sri Lanka has, for centuries, been an important part of geopolitics, 
which not many people would suspect based on its size and location. However, it sits along important sea lanes and is situated between the two largest countries by population. As China continues to try and build its influence throughout the region, they have focused a lot of attention and funding on this island nation. If the country was to come under stronger Chinese influence, global trade could be more and more difficult if China wanted to block access to the area. This is particularly important as the world continues to experience rising inflation partially driven by supply chain issues and the world reconsiders the future of trade. From a geostrategic standpoint, Sri Lanka has always occupied a very important position in the world, at least location-wise. And I think that position has only gotten more important as a result of the rise of China. And with future conflict and competition with China bound to take place in the so-called Indo-Pacific, Sri Lanka becomes all the more important. And so China's footprint has kind of widened, especially since Xi Jinping came to power. And this footprint is connected to the so-called you know, Belt and Road Initiative. China has acquired a port, the Hambantara port. And this was a port that has cost about just over $3 billion. It was built in this remote area, a backwater really, but that's this, this is the area the Rajapaksas hail from. And it was built with Chinese loans, which Sri Lanka could not pay back. And so now it has ended up giving China the port on a 99-year lease and has led to accusations of China practicing a debt trap diplomacy, which, of course, the Chinese disagree with. So the Chinese tentacles kind of expanding within Sri Lanka has rattled, especially India, because India is right next door. And the Rajapaksas didn't have the best relationship with India compared to the kind of cozy relationship they enjoyed with China. But that was a, a very transactional relationship that they enjoyed with China because the Chinese were willing to provide the loans they needed and the Rajapaksas were able to line their pockets using commissions of those loans. So India now is playing a more assertive role. India has provided almost $3.8 billion worth of assistance just this year and is likely to provide even more going forward. India is encouraging and working with some of its big private conglomerates to invest in Sri Lanka and, and thereby continue to widen its footprint. The U.S. is obviously concerned about China's expanding influence in the Indo-Pacific and, and what China stands to do and gain in Sri Lanka. So are the Australians. But in some ways, they continue to be involved. But I think they're happy to see India take the lead on what happens in Sri Lanka, because this is the country right next door. And it's a, a burgeoning power. It's a regional power that could well end up becoming a major power in the Pacific. So those are some of the dynamics. And then there's Japan, of course, that would also like to play a bigger role in the country. And I think what one could see is Japan and India work together to play a, a, a more coordinated role with ample support from the United States and Australia and these other Western allies like France and Britain that also are expressing concern about you know, uh, how things are panning out in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so geostrategically, Sri Lanka is, I think, going to play an even more important role as this China-US rivalry intensifies. 
Finally, Sri Lanka provides a warning and a bellwether for other countries in similar situations. Many countries in Southeast Asia have similar levels of unsustainable debt and are potentially the next Sri Lanka. If they can learn the lessons that Sri Lanka has to provide, similar destabilizations of countries can be avoided. The biggest lesson to be learned here, however, is for the citizens of countries where democratic backsliding is occurring. I think the big takeaway here for countries is make sure that your leaders are among the least corrupt that you can elect. Keep demanding for accountability and transparency. Create guardrails and structures that prevent any particular individual willy-nilly doing whatever they want on behalf of the, the country and the people. I think that ultimately may be the biggest takeaway because there are so many corrupt leaders out there. Thank you to everyone for your time and interest in listening to this discussion on the current crisis in Sri Lanka. Thank you to Dr. Neil Devota, Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Wake Forest University for providing his insights. This has been The Global in the Granite State, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Learn more about this great organization at wacnh.org. Tim Horgan is the host, producer, editor, audio technician, and anything else you can think of for this podcast. Our theme music, as always, is Admin by A.A. Alto. Our interlude music is Revolution Now by Josh Woodward. Until next time. (laughs) 